Ronnie Humphreys, thank you very much for uh, um, taking the time to do this. Um, you were born in Dublin? Yes, yes, I was in 1970. Um, and lived pretty much over in the north side for the most part. I started off in uh, Fairview for only a couple of years and then out to Hoth and then Sutton and then my family sort of very, uh, I suppose in a kind of sort of slightly inspired by the sort of Gerald Durrell-like notion, decided to take us out of the big bad city. So we moved down to Wicklow. Oh, lovely. Yeah, right. down to British Bay. Oh, lovely. Yeah. But always by the sea. Up and down the pale, to be yeah. quite honest, because um, about 20 years ago, um, my parents moved to Laos, so they lived just between Rohan and Dundalk. So you're right, yeah, pretty much up and down beside yeah. the sea. Lovely. Mm. lovely. Um, my mum is from Laos. Oh, right, what part? Uh, Cullen. Just oh yeah, 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 yeah. But it's lovely. The countryside is gorgeous. It's fantastic over there, and actually, there's something quite nice about being in a small county. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There is a real sense of everybody knows everybody else, and yeah, you know, you're only two it's degrees true. from finding out about you know, yeah, the right place to get. I don't know anything from scones to a car fixed. Yeah, you know? no, it's true. Because I'm from Tipperary, it's the same. It's yeah, because it is. It's a nice feeling. Um. So then you went to UCD. Yes. So before that, your your kind of your earliest film memory. Well, on my, my father's side, my, dad, uh, my dad's dad was um, a music critic, um, and so there were always lots and lots of records, and I remember looking at some of them, and they, you know, they sort of got fantastic um, covers of sort of things like, sort of like operas and Gilbert and Sullivan, and, and the idea that there were these shows behind these sort of like albums always kind of intrigued me, I mean, that, you, that I didn't really wasn't attracted to... Um, you know, sort of like classical music seemed to be just classical, but the idea that there were kind of uh, all these different sort of moving parts and that there were actors and that there were singers. Um, I, I remember intriguing me as a kid when I found this sort of stash of, of old um, 78 records. And then on the other side, but I never knew him, my mum's dad was actually a theatre critic um, for the New York Times. Um, and so my mum's side was always very definitely, you know, we got taken to the theatre a lot and we went to the cinema a lot. So, you know, I remember going to see films like, you know, Watership Down and Grease, for instance, or The Riddle of the Sands. And you'd see them in both. There used to be double bills um, in the Savoy and we used to go to the Adelphi. And so we went quite a lot. I mean, you know, my memory is, is that there was no sense. It became a very regular occurrence to actually go to the cinema. As I said, predominantly... The Adelphi and the Savoy. I don't really have any strong... No, I saw a couple, like Little Lord Faltery, there was a remake. I saw what was then called The Metropole, which was now the screen cinema. Right. Okay. But we always went to the cinema in the city centre. I don't have any recollection of Fairview, for instance, or The Grand, or, or going to any of those cinemas. So coming to town became a big part of going to the cinema. So it was an event. It was an event, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and there was never a sense when we were going that we... You know, we went to just children's films that we actually went to see films, you know, as such. Um, and I, I remember continuing that because when I was, I think, about 16 or 17, um, they brought back four classic Hitchcocks into the um, Carlton cinema. And um, I brought my sisters to see Vertigo. Oh, okay. um, my sister okay. would have been about six. So she says if anything happens to her in later life that she's going to put it down to the trauma of her first film being okay. Vertigo. Okay. But in a, in a way, that kind of is very close to the way in which I grew up. You know, we watched all t different types of films when they came on telly. There was never any ever a sense that you weren't able to watch something because you weren't the right, uh, right age. 
I remember seeing Cabaret, for instance, and when I was very, very young, and having no idea what was going on, but was kind of fascinated and delighted by you know the spectacle and the yeah. dancing and the yeah. colour and the music and stuff yeah. like that. Okay. Um, but there was never any sense that any of the subjects within that film were inappropriate for somebody who was you know seven or eight. Yeah, because I was wondering, like, when did we bring in the, the rating system? When did well, I think they were always there, weren't they? But it, it was more, I, I suppose, it's, it's the idea about the appropriateness of something, because obviously that's a big debate in Irish sort of, sort of cinema and cinema culture, is so many things were considered inappropriate that they were banned or they were taken out. And, you know, I mean, my mother told stories of going to see The Graduate, for instance, where the entire relationship with Mrs. Robinson wasn't there and wasn't actually in the film you know so so you know in my head i didn't grow up in a family where that was part of the process that something was appropriate um and and yet now you know i have a godson who's seven and i know that we have long debates as to what will actually work or not work for him or you know pixar is considered genius because it works for two different audiences and satisfies on two different levels you know i'm when i started going to the cinema you know if you didn't get what was going on on the screen it's you know it wasn't a huge loss to you do you know what I mean and maybe the next time you thought it it would you know yeah okay um so within that then you went to UCD yes um, yes what did you study I did English and Greek and Roman and philosophy um but I did arts in UCD so I did I did English and Greek and Roman and then I did an MA in film studies it was the first year of the film studies MA um I think that was 93 92 to 93 um, and I mean that was fantastic because that's where I started programming for the um, film society mm-hmm. I joined as a first year rep um, and I remember going down to collect 16mm prints uh, from GFD which was then on um, what was it? it was in the old building just around the corner from Westland Row and having to cart them back on the 10 bus um, but to my mind that's you know in a way it's, it's kind of full circle to working on a film festival because it's fun and it's a whole group of people trying to put on a show effectively for for another audience and working out what that audience likes or doesn't like by literally talking to them you know and they were all as I said my peers I was first year rep and then second year I joined the committee and by my third year I was programming and the auditor and I loved that I loved going to see the different screening sessions as part of what was then the Federation of Irish Film Societies and selecting films for as I said my generation, you know, in in yeah, in, in, the yeah, I, in, it is. in it's UCD, a, so. it's a lovely thing. To, there's kind of there's great autonomy in that too. I suppose. There is, and and you know, we were great fun. Ozzy Whitehead, who was in Grapes of Wrath, the the John Ford film, came in as a guest, and I bumped into Gabriel Byrne in the street, and I asked him, and you know, that that idea that you could ask people, I think, to do things, you know, I, it, it's always struck me that a lot of the time people don't ask. And that's why people don't do things, you know. But if you're a student. There's no reason why you shouldn't ask somebody yeah. to come in and do things, you know. And I think as a student, there's a you have a. It's that weird thing that while you're a student, you kind of have a greater freedom to ask, and then once you become way a more freedom, it's, it's, yeah, yeah, there's a different. Uh, and also, the, you know, the 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 whole mercenary side of of you know public performance doesn't happen when you're a student. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's not appearance money. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? You're doing it because you maybe have a connection. Gabriel Byrne had a connection to UCD. You know, he wanted, and I remember we did a screening of the Coen Brothers film that he did. Uh, the Coen Brothers film that he did? Uh, the one with the hat. It's the kind of Irish inflected one. Miller's Crossing. Um, and it was jam-packed, do you know what I mean? And, and, and you know, those are the types of, oh, you know, and then there's the other side of it, you know, when the equipment breaks down or when you find out. My favourite one is when we, um, 
we were meant to be showing Working Girl, which is the film with Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver, and instead we showed Working Girls, which is about a Lizzie Borden film about prostitution in New York. And that's the other side, you know, of programming, which is when, when things go wrong, what, yeah. what you do next, yeah. you know? But so that's kind of the skill as well. That's easy Absolutely. And it's also people, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, the problem with cinemas is that a lot of people think that it's just a recorded... It's recorded content that will be shown four times a day, and the people who are involved in it are, you know, the subject of sort of glossy magazines, you know, and it's completely detached from the reality of the people sitting in the cinema. And what I like about film festivals, and I kind of probably learned in, in, in UCD, is that, you know, there are real people watching the films and there are real people who are involved in making them. And, and you know, if the, it's kind of the job of a programmer is to bring those two worlds as close as you can so that people can step behind the silver screen or behind the curtains or whatever cliche you want, you know, to see that it is an art form in the same way that, you know, a concert orchestra is a group of artists, or a theatre production, or you know, literature. You know that there is a there is maybe more people involved in cinema, but there's usually one person who is coordinating the vision. Um, and I think that that to me is always the kind of interesting thing about film uh, that you know, the fact that it's it's seen as so disposable and superficial, and yet on another level, I've seen more people cry at a film than I've probably seen at any other art form. Yeah. Yeah, there's kind of an intimacy to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose I'm jumping ahead, but that is one of the things about a film festival. You kind of you humanise it in a way because mm. you've got those that have made it that are present usually, or like you do here, you've got like question and answers with mm. the stars. Or is that something that kind of informs your approach to programming? Yeah, I mean, it does in a couple of different ways. Um, I mean, I'm always conscious, for instance, that um, everybody is on the same, same continuum. You know, you can have a first-time short filmmaker or documentary maker who, who, you know, in the same way is presenting their film at a film festival for the same reason as an Oscar-winning director or, or, or actor. They want to see and feel the response of an audience to their film, and they want to be considered a filmmaker amongst their peers. So one of the things that I was really conscious of when I started working in the festival was one that we would try and you know, really amplify the Q&As, that we would also make sure that people had an opportunity for the public element of them asking questions, but equally that the hosts would also be some of the Irish filmmakers that I kind of know and I respect. So it's been really great to have people like Conor Horgan and Lenny Abramson and Marco Halloran hosting Q&As with their peers you know, there's a real danger, I think, in Ireland where sometimes Q&As come in and we sit there nearly in this kind of like, we're not worthy, we're a small island and you're somebody. Actually, making that conversation more about parity has been something I'm really interested in. You know, the idea that when we show Irish films in the context of the rest of the festival, it's because they're as good as them, if not better, actually. And that those filmmakers... Um, their work should be celebrated in the same way that we celebrate, you know, European auteurs like, you know, Olivier Essayas or Roy Anderson or whatever. We actually have some really great filmmakers like that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We're just a tiny bit Irish, so we like to put them down a tiny bit. Yeah. So the conversations and the discussions and the Q and A's and the masterclasses are all about trying to tease the audience and the filmmakers away from falling into such really simplistic kind of, you know, dynamics, you know, which is, we're so delighted that you're here, you know, we're not worthy. It's like, actually, par and par, I look at about 1,100 films a year. To be quite honest, we punch so far above our, our own weight, it's incredible. And is there, it's maybe a silly question, of 
Is there something distinctive or particular about the approach Irish filmmakers take? Is there a, is there a certain thing that we're very good at, or uh, I don't I am um, I don't know because I'm always sort of terrified, you know, because you're you're kind of it's like being in a film festival, you know. Sometimes you're inside the tornado, so it's kind of hard. I mean, I think there does seem to be a natural facility with dialogue. And, and with language that you do you do notice in Irish films and the very very good Irish films there's a near there's a near sort of flippancy nearly with the casualness with which they can write dialogue and I, I, I presume that's because we talk so much and we've got a sort of a sort of both verbal and kind of literary um, I think I know that when I started out there was a huge reliance on the same tropes it was either the north or the land um, and I see that that's gone um, I think there are phases like there are many fests, or many genre, national cinemas where they cluster around a particular genre. And I mean, at the moment, there's a lot of horror films, for instance, coming out. Um, I think, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I think we have a sort of interest in the festival on screenwriting, and I think that's one of the things that is kind of important. Is you know Irish films and the structure that they have you know I wonder whether or not the this sort of relationship to theatre um, I mean I'm thinking of somebody like for instance Marco Rowe is a fantastic screenwriter do you know what I mean and has a great sense of, of st- sort of like structure and, and, and um, dynamic and drama and I think for instance you, you'd say that also about sort of Jim Sheridan and Neil Jordan do you know what I mean they're, they're, they're kind of drawn to very very dramatic Stories which are, are then sort of like amplified by sort of really good performances. Um, you don't maybe have as many sort of experimental or, or sort of um, non-linear type of art films. It's, it's just not part of our sort of like landscape. So we're very dialogue plot orientated, I think. Um, but then I say that and next year I'm sure that there'll be a couple of other people who will come around and completely, you know, up- upend it. Um, and I think the other thing that's really interesting is somebody like Terry McMahon, for instance, who's, who's you know come in in a very specific way into the industry. I mean, he's been working for years as a as a writer. Um, so with Charlie Casanova, you had a deliberately provocative piece of film, and then the second film is equally provocative. Do you know what I mean? And I think it's really interesting to see a filmmaker who's challenging his audience. I think one of the things that's interesting about our cinema is it is trapped between America and Britain. And so there's always been a sort of, you know, a dynamic where it was like films had to be aimed at those t- those other two audiences as well, you know. So um, whether it was casting appealing to an American audience yeah. or whatever, that the language has sometimes been, uh, I think, has slightly held us back. Sometimes, I, occasionally, I think it's held us back um, because we we kind of see two really big markets as being important as opposed to say. French cinema or Spanish cinema, which sees its own market in itself, do you know what I mean, and then goes beyond it. Um, yeah. You know, Irish films always ed- uh, aim for Sundance. They always try to get to Tribeca. The American audience is hugely important to it, you know, and I, I'm always intrigued by that. Sometimes I'm sort of going, does that mean that you make films for that audience, you know, and, and that that's a dynamic that happens. For instance, you know, I don't see it in Polish cinema, for instance, Danish cinema, you don't see that need to make films that appeal to an American audience. It's nearly like the audience that you're making it for is the one, and the it, language that you're making it in. And is that, is that unavoidable in a way in that we, 
if you make a, a feature film, mm-hmm. you're not going to like to generate kind of money. You have to, our audience base here isn't big enough to support that, so we have to pitch to foreign audiences. Where is it? I think it's a combination of things. You see, my my point would be that you know, for instance, I I know the Polish system quite well, and and if you make a film in Poland, there's a big enough audience there that if it's a Polish language film, mm-hmm. that it will be seen there. I mean, if it gets an international premiere at a festival and if it gets an international sale or whatever then that's a bonus my my point about our cinema is is exactly what you're saying it ha- it, it the, the base is so small it has to aim outward and i think that sometimes can have a negative effect on on if you like the overall shape of a film because i think it's sometimes chasing an audience maybe you could even say it's maybe particularly in some of its casting or the way in which it might resolve does it feel the need to have a, 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 a very ter- three-act structure, do you know what I mean, with yeah. a clever, res- you know, cre- clever resolution that ma- makes a, a very mainstream audience happy. And it just seems to me that the films, something like Calvary, for instance, is a good example, that the more kind of, uh, you know, that you should be able to take risks, you know, and that you don't necessarily, and as I said, sometimes by aiming it at a big market like America, sometimes people, I think, dampen down the risks. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so just jumping back a little yeah. bit, I'm always intrigued by those years when somebody finishes college. Oh God, yeah. And, you know that it's a tricky period. Did you go straight into something, or had you an idea when you went into college mm-hmm. what you wanted to do, or what career? Um, you not really. I well, actually, that's a lie. I I had started volunteering for the film festival when I was about fifteen. Um, well, I started going to the film festival when I was fifteen, and which is three years too young but um, I got to know Freddie McGanna and Nicholas O'Neill and Michael Dwyer who were all the film critics at that time and Kieran Carthy and they basically told me uh, I had wanted to be a film critic but I, I kind of thought that I had to go away I had to go and do journalism somewhere else I was thinking about going to Manchester and then they said no get an arts degree stay here get to know people um, and I kind of kept in touch with them and some of them actually gave me a job and um, Freddie actually got me reviewing books for the Evening Herald and the, the volunteering that I did I also went to the FLA and I volunteered for what was then called the Junior Dublin Film Festival it was on at the IFI back then and I did the MA in film studies and there was a kind of weird six months where I didn't have a job I kind of knew lots of people and Dublin was quite small so everybody who was involved in sort of like film or you know sort of film exhibition knew each other um, and then I went for the, the administrator job and I didn't get it. And the woman who got it um, lasted three months and then felt there was too much and that it wasn't possible to put the festival on. So my first job was starting in July 4th, Independence Day, in the IFI. And I had to put a film festival on by the mid-September. And that, I still think, was the best ever experience. I started working like... 10 hour days uh, in an office there was a structure there in that we brought films in from around the world and we had a predominantly schools audience but everything else from print transport to PR to administration to budgeting to um, getting an audience finding an audience to um, marketing the event to you know negotiating terms on the cinemas I did all of that in the space of whatever that was whatever three and a half months four months um and that kind of immersive process, I think, it was invaluable. You know? yeah. um, and then 
they kept me on the festival worked really well and then I got and what was the festival the Junior Dublin Film Festival yeah so um, and then I got a job with Donald Taylor Black he asked me because obviously festival life is very strange it's a bit like a circus Um, you know when when you put away the tents and the animals are all away then you know you're kind of looking I'm just looking at your yourself going what am I doing and he asked me to help him put together the Ourselves Alone, which is a documentary on Irish cinema for the BFI centenary, which was 1996, so this would have been 1995. So I did that for a year, uh, working on that with him, and it was really interesting, but it meant that I was clearing rights and copyrights on about 100 films, so I got to know a lot of the different companies and distributors and filmmakers. Um, And during that time, the education department in the IFI was looking for someone to do... um, to be education officer. Now, I'm an MA in film studies, and I had an arts degree, and I was obviously a kind of film nut, but I had no teaching skills or background at all, other than, as I said, working in an educational festival that had a, you know, a, had schools attending it. Um, but somehow I charmed them, and they gave me the job. And I worked there in the education department for about six years, I think, um, putting together study packs and programs for schools around the country and teaching um, predominantly transition year teachers actually about how to teach film uh, and I genuinely think the fact that I didn't have a HDIP was a benefit I would say that of course in hindsight um, because back then it was really about trying to open up teachers ideas about film that it was good and fun and interesting and not necessarily curriculum based and was this around the time when they brought in film on the into the yes so that, it was just before then. So there was a lot of fear. So teachers were terrified. Um, and the IFI also, it opened in 92 and I joined in 95. So it was three years old, you know, and it was kind of working its way through the teething problems of a new institution. It was in Temple Bar, the Celtic Tiger. It had, you know, lots and lots of sort of energy and, and you know, people who were working there were people like Nick Coslow from Warner Brothers and Siobhan Farrell from Eclipse and Glenn Hogarty from Limelight and Trish Long would have been head of marketing. She just left just before me. Um, and so there's a, a, a big gang of people that I work with now who I started working with, as I said, in the, in the 90s, you know, and, and they're all still in film and they're all very much nearly in a scarily way they're as enthusiastic as they were about film then now you know um, even though a lot of them have moved away from kind of art house and world cinema which would have been the IFI dynamic you know some of them have moved into a much more mainstream much more studio sort of product okay um, and then the strangers in fiction and the French film festival. yes were yes. they your babies or had they existed um, the both of them had actually existed in different incarnations which makes me feel like I've sort of like you know taken over robbers grave robber um, what Docklands was a festival um, that was set up that was funded by the um, film board uh, and then after I think two incarnations it fell apart um, and the idea was to try and just keep it going uh, and to, to bring a, a, a doc fest that brought the best of international work and brought some sales agents to Dublin. Uh, and I think I did it for about six or seven years and I loved it. I mean, we had Frederick Wiseman and Steve James and what was really interesting is uh, someone like Piers O'Han Casala, the Finnish director, like amazing, amazing films um, and huge audiences, like really, really great audiences. So that was the 
Docfest, which I think is now getting its name changed back to the IFI Documentary Festival. And then the French Festival was just funny. The French Festival had been a thing that had been coordinated by the, um, what you call them, by Ronan Glenan. Um, and it used to run out of the screen, I think, and the Savoy. And then for, as is want, it fell, it, it too sort of fell apart. And I think there was sort of issues around sort of coordinating the venues and sponsors. And the French embassy came to me and, and said, we want to do something on French cinema. And I said, well, great. And I said, I had a plan to do a, a season of work by Agnes Varda, who's this great French director. So we said, would she come over? So she came over and we did a whole celebration of her work. And it really got the embassy, I suppose, and the IFI sort of energized around the idea that, you know, it was a really good partnership. And I was really excited about it because it, it's, I mean, in hindsight, it's a really good way to start your career programming is to have a single focus. So when I went to festivals, I either looked at documentaries or French films. And you get, it's a great way of getting incredible depth in a subject because you literally avoid anything that isn't actually you know, French or a documentary. Um, a French documentary is a double whammy. Um, because around 96, 97, I started going to Cannes. Um, and, I, you know, Pete Walsh was the programmer in the IFI at that stage. And he had been to Cannes for a number of years before. Uh, but it was kind of unusual to send somebody who, you know, wasn't actually the head of cinemas to a festival. But to my mind, it was the first opportunity that I had to see that we can be so parochial, parochial and insular in Ireland. We need to go to festivals. You need to see what other programmers are doing. You need to see films. You need to talk to people. Um, I'm really conscious that I didn't really have a mentor as such. I didn't have somebody who kind of you know, guided me in the you know, best way. As I said, the guys, the film critics in the film festival in 95 or 96 are probably the closest that I had to people, are 86, closest to having a kind of, you know, sounding board. Um, but going to other festivals is the best education you can possibly have. You know, seeing films, seeing other festivals, seeing the timings that they put certain films on or the cinemas that they put certain films on. Um, and also, you know, I mean, it's going to sound like a rant, but I mean, you know, RTE doesn't show foreign language films. It's very hard to find them if you want. If you are really interested in you know, looking at even somebody as you know, popular or, or, or high profile as Truffaut, you'll be hard pressed to find all of them, never mind if you go back off the beaten track. You know? um, and when you're inviting somebody to Dublin, sometimes it's bloody hard to find their back catalogue of work without actually having to ask them to send you DVDs over. And there isn't a real sense of shared collective between programmers where people will give you them. I mean, some of us will. Do you know what I mean? Sort of, if you're doing something in Galway or you know, somebody's doing something in Cork or wherever and you say, listen, I have some of those DVDs at home. You know, VHSs actually, in my case, probably. Um, but that was why going to festivals, you'd find yourself 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night seeing a filmmaker. Everybody else in the audience was doing this, going, yeah, that's great. And you're like, I've never heard of this person. You know? So that was what was really good about, about those festivals was just being able to immerse myself in sort of a genre and a national cinema and, and being able to learn, you know, who were the key figures, who were the important people, how would you get to them? If you were to put on a Frederick Wiseman retrospective, what would you do, you know? Um, and how do you get to them if you do want to? Well, it's a combination of factors. I mean, like, for instance, Kim Cattrall, you asked me 
a while back now about about people speaking about their 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 craft I suppose I was at a film festival in Poland and she was talking about being a stage actress and being a screen actress in television and film and it was literally about you know I, I was about 20 minutes in I just thought god this woman is really really interesting talking about her craft and then I was doing a QA and a um, with the director for wedding Mike Newell for, for weddings and funeral and we ended up all having dinner and she said, you know, God, I haven't been in Dublin since I made the film with John Borman. And I said, well, why don't you come? That's the easy version of how it happens. The other version is, is the, sort of the letters that go out, do you know what I mean? Where it is basically about you sending some form of invitation that really gives the guest confidence that you're going to treat them and their work with a certain level of seriousness. And I, I'm now 20 years working in this area. And I honestly think the biggest benefit that I have is that I know people who know people, which makes it a tiny bit like a mafia. But it means that you can find a mechanism or an invitation, or you might know somebody who you know you spoke to when they came here who might be able to give yeah. you an endorsement. Yeah. Um, what's, what's I find interesting is, is, going back to that idea of not having a mentor, nobody does that. Everybody's extremely protective of their contacts in Ireland, and they always have been. Um, I've found it far easier to ask my friends in... Uh, the UK or in France or in Poland or in the US to make an intervention or to make a suggestion or an endorsement than asking an Irish person. The favour, it's a favour system, you know. I, I, I started working in 94 and we did favours for each other. You did things for other people because you thought, right, well, I know that they will do the same for me in the future. I think what happened is, is in the noughties, people became consultants and that you got a fee for doing that. And I think now that it's all crashed and everybody's going back to the notion of favours, I think we're returning to that. Um, I think it's much easier for somebody in America to help a person in Ireland than it is for another Irish person to help an Irish person because on another level they're kind of saying, well, you know, it, you know it's not going to happen, it's, it's not going to affect me if it's I do it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, But I just find that for people starting out, very few people help each other, you know, and I, I find that kind of annoying, you know, and I find if you... People ask favours, but it's very interesting that they always seem to be one direction, you know, and I'm kind of intrigued by that. Does nobody at any stage think that, you know, it may be worthwhile offering to do something for someone before you ask again, you know? Yeah, okay. um, so then, just jumping back, how did this position present itself to you, director of the... Um, Michael Dwyer started it up in 2003 I was away in Berlin and I remember he rang me and he said I'm going to do this blah 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 and I said this sounds fantastic Michael quite delighted big fan of the festival um, and was always intrigued because Michael was the, the the programming in the festival is probably the most high profile programming film programming in the country you know the um, programming in the IFI and the Lighthouse are probably the most mixed of all of the cinemas operating but they're always um, seen as very kind of, um, not domestic is the wrong word, but they're, you know, they're, it's very functional programming because films are released, they're put on the cinema. So you actually have, you know, there's a, a, a daily, there's a weekly, monthly schedule to a cinema, which basically doesn't alter, you know, whatever new films are coming out, some of them will be shown in the IFI. The bit that's interesting about film, about film centres, if you like, or, or sort of alternate art house cinemas, is the bit they do on top of them. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that I always thought was interesting about a festival is what is that 
what are the basic things that a film festival has to show what are the films that they are expected to show and then what's the rest you know so the festival shows you know audience it, it's it's aimed at a kind of broad audience so from my point of view I immediately wanted to see what had Michael been targeting and he had been targeting a very kind of clear-sighted film fan audience so they knew their European cinema they were very intensely curious um, and you know if there was a, a you know a big star then that was fantastic um, so when Michael stepped down um, I was approached to see if I'd be interested to take the job and I'd been working in the IFI 13 years then so I'd been there a long time I was assistant director I was programming two, two cinemas I was doing the I was also programming kind of adult education and seasons and stuff like that. Um, and it kind of appealed to me. You know, there's a tiny bit of like, ooh, we'll jump out of the institutional cinema and we'll jump into a kind of mad, you know, sort of like international sort of festival hopping sort of experience. And I went, I didn't talk to Michael about it, but I know when I went to the interview, it sounded fun and interesting and different and dynamic. And then I got the job and I was shadowing Michael for the first festival. And what was really interesting is, is Michael was the Irish Times film critic. So he actually had a full-time job that he was doing for a publication. So his role was really to select the programme and then there were staff who would, you know, find the films or make the invitations and put the structure together and stuff like that. So my role was much more sort of, you know, weekly in the office, much more, I suppose, in a way sort of embedded in the actual organisation. So it, it became, I suppose, quite a significant shift for the organisation because then we actually had somebody who was going to be, you know, expanding the programme and working on it in a full-time capacity rather than maybe doing it alongside a significant job in the, in, in the Irish Times. So... Um, I remember the first year, one of the things I wanted to do was to bring the amount of industry workshops up and, and the sort of the idea that there would be uh, an engagement with the public that would happen outside of the cinemas because I think film festivals are often very discreet. You know, you see a big, large group of people outside a door and then they're gone, yeah. you know? So, so I suppose my point is, is that I kind of jumped towards a job like this because I could see all of the potential that was available that maybe when you work in um, a cinema, you're so used to, you become nearly conditioned to, to the idea of what you can or can't do. Whereas a film festival, because you have a year to think up all the mad ideas that you possibly can, it gives you great freedom, you know, and nothing is off the table until, as I said, about a month before when you literally have to literally knuckle down and get that catalogue finished. So you've kind of answered my question, which is, what did you set out to do? But mm. it was to take what was a small thing and just kind of blow it up in a way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the thing is, is it's a capital city festival. So it has to, I think, combine something that is quite mainstream, um, but also something that is genuinely filled with a very curated programme that is engaging with world cinema. So it has to have integrity, but I think it also has to have a bit of sort of you know, glitz and glamour, because I think, you know, that's what pulls people towards it, whether it's the media, whether it's the audiences, um, whether it's the kind of international sort of perception of the festival. Um, and also, 
it's very important to me that I keep an eye on what's happening with the rest of the landscape. There is still a French film festival. There is still a documentary festival. You know, there's dark light. There's gays. There's lots there's of other so festivals. Many. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, I think too many of them. If I'm really honest, because I think we all have a, a, a or a sort of res- responsibility towards audiences getting value for money and getting something that they wouldn't see, um, or an experience that is different. Um, and I sometimes worry about that. I mean, I'm always conscious that when a guest comes, they're not necessarily coming just to, you know, the film festival. They could be going to the IFI or they could be going to the IFTERS or they're going to be going somewhere. But you want to make sure that when they leave, they have only the best things to say about, you know, the, 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 the island or the city or whatever, so that they can act as an ambassador for more people to come back. Um, but the other side of it is, is that I think Irish audiences are very sophisticated, so they do push you, you know, um, and I think, you know, I'm always conscious that a lot of the time, you know, you're kind of surfing along and you've no real idea, you know, what you think as to who's going to be the next big hit. Do you know what I mean? I mean, we had um, Tom Hardy was in with Bronson, for instance. And I mean, anyone who saw Bronson knew that Tom Hardy was going to be a spectacular sort of like star. But I mean, that's kind of what film festivals also do is about people discovering yeah. talent and finding talent before it maybe actually goes mainstream, you know? So you, you have to be, I suppose, kind of clever in that, in that you know, element. We only have 140 films, which is not that many compared to maybe London, for instance, or Toronto. Um, but it's still a significant number, I think, because it should be representative of what's happening internationally. And I always find that a problem because I do genuinely feel like there are huge gaps in kind of world cinema exhibition for instance in terms of South America or Asia for instance that we just we try and address every year but there are other organizations that probably should be doing that as well because looking at the program it's so broad you know that you cover from classics to mainstream to more global niche Mm. um is it a frustration for you It, it kind of highlights how limited I suppose the the scope that we see on general release. Oh, it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking. I mean, I, I, have a, I have an argument with a friend of mine who thinks that New York is the best city in the world and I always argue Paris. And my argument is based around the fact that if you go to, if you go to New York, with the exception of maybe one or two of the art house venues, you, you probably can't see that much. But in Paris, you can just see so much from all over the world. Now, part of that is because there are audiences from all over the world and people and nationalities all living in Paris and, and they all want to see that. New York as well. Yeah, but... In Ireland, honestly, you look around the cinemas and you go, this is, this, is, this is what's happening outside the world. You know, it's nearly all English language. You know, occasionally there'll be some, you know, sort of French hits. But there are huge gaps. There's very, I mean, in terms of small titles, I mean, Spanish cinema outside of Almodovar has practically disappeared. And as Italian cinema outside of Sorrentino practically disappeared. Um, you know, the, the sort of Greek waves that came with Yorgos Lanthos and stuff, Nobody saw that coming, you know, because nobody had actually even thought about Greek cinema for a very, very long time. You know, the Middle East is kind of, you know, since the Kiristami and what's the Makalmakos, you don't really know any of the new names that are coming up. Africa, outside of Timbuktu, do you know what I mean? That'll be the last African film that we'll probably, well, defrit, we'll have for another 10, probably another 10 years. Um, Scandinavia, most of that is driven by TV and Borgen, do you know what I mean? But it's great and it's fantastic. Um, Iceland, Hello, do you know what I mean? Unless it's Thor, uh, Friedrich Thor Friedrichsen, probably won't show it. Canada, no, okay, 
there is something to be said about the fact that Agoyan and Cronenberg are now making predominantly kind of American films. But French language, Canadian cinema is not shown here at all. You could go, you know, sort of South America and, you know, Chile, Brazil, you know, Uruguay, zero, you know, for the most part. Even Australian cinema, you know, has actually probably fallen out. And then Asia didn't even get started. You know, you can, you know, the Korean cinema, for instance, Chinese cinema, Japanese cinema, the Japanese festival does address that, which is kind of fantastic. And then Russian cinema, which is really, really popular, is very rarely actually done in any major way. So when you're programming, are you, do you kind of, do you, do you throw those in regardless of, is it, are you, is it about I kind time? of try to address it, do you know what I mean? But I am conscious that, you know, I don't want to put films in just because I want to compensate for that area. But, you know, and you, I mean, for instance, I, I think we have three Brazilian films this year. And it was genuinely because they were really good films, you know, and, and then suddenly it became, oh, well, you know, I, there was a Mexican film, for instance, this year, but there's three Brazilian films. And then you're going, is that the way that I'm, I'm measuring them up? There's only one Korean film, for instance, and one Russian film. And um, the Italian season, for instance, this year is, is much bigger than it was last year. Um, and it's really, really strong in terms of documentaries. Um, it's also got an Italian film called I Can Quit Whenever I Want, which is laugh out loud funny, which is the other side of it. Everybody every year says, why are they all so depressing? And I'm going, well, I'm literally reflecting what's out there. If I could show more comedies, I would. They're just then, not there. Yeah, the, I mean, we see very few. Very few. And is there... They're not there. There are, they are there in very broad, but not very good. So, I mean, there are some really bad French films, French comedies that I'm protecting you from. You, I mean, as in the nation. Um, and they're dire. Um, and, you know, but I do try and find Spanish comedies and I've looked at Italian comedies and German comedies. Now, a lot of it is, is you know, comedies sometimes can be very local, you know, but we've all known breakout hits, you know, where we've actually gone, wow, that works really well. Um, but it's, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a world, it's a global issue. Actually, well, it's not a global issue, that's what makes it sound huge. It's a real first world problem. There aren't enough <laughs> comedies in, in art house cinema. International world cinema needs more comedies. But it kind of does. You know, because when I say Romanian cinema, we immediately think of the great, great sort of like golden age of Romanian cinema the last, what, 10 years. But we don't think of necessarily comedies. I mean, black, dark, depressing, doom-ridden, poverty-filled films. Absolutely. Um, and that's the other side of it is, is that our comedy if it's world cinema it's predominantly about um, it's all very black do you know what I mean and it's, yeah. it's about sort of trying to put one over on the government or something like that you know it's a kind of institutional or bureaucratic kind of Kafkaesque nightmare type of comedy which isn't really the life affirming one that you want to go out of the cinema singing and smiling to yourself um, but that's I mean, you know, that's Irish comedy. I mean, that's what was so much fun about the stag. So you laughed. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. know, and I just think filmmakers. I know why they're making longer films and more serious films because they think it makes them more important. But I can tell them, as as, as somebody who watches as many as I do, there is nothing like watching uh, in a, a market screening a whole group of people laughing. And you know they're going to go out and say, "Look, I found a funny comedy. I'll buy it." It's much easier to sell a comedy, I would have thought, than a depressing, gloomy. You know, dysfunctional family. And in many ways, they're harder to do as well. To Way harder. To kind of prove yourself. Um, so when you're building a programme, then, where do you start? Where is your starting point? Do you, do you work around themes? Or? Um, 
Not really. I mean, like there are blocks. I mean, it would be very easy for me to say that there are kind of blocks that I need to kind of achieve, you know, so there'll be the sort of Irish block and then there'll be Europe block and then there'll be kind of world blocks. But I found myself more and more interested in sort of first and second time filmmakers. Um, so I probably take more risks and watch more of them. Um, I have a couple of friends who were really, really good at spotting talent from way, way out. Uh, and so I've kind of maybe, you know, sort of followed their suggestions in the last couple of years. And it's been really fruitful. I mean, a lot of American indie directors, for instance, a number of, like Tobias Lindholm, for instance, who did a hijacking, you know, second time director. Um, it, it seems to me that that's really, really interesting, but that's not to say that um, there aren't, uh, I suppose, so that's one thing would be the idea of kind of first and second time directors. And I suppose then the other side of it is trying to, uh, I mean, the documentary thing will never go that far away from my heart. So trying to actually bring in kind of really good documentaries. I mean, the Vim Vendors, for instance, is fantastic. And then Last Man on the Moon. And then there's always a couple of other documentaries that are really provocative that you kind of want to include as well. So, you know, in, in a way, I, I, I mean, I could say that, you know, documentaries never let me down in the same way that some, sometimes feature films have. And what is is we had um, Nick Ryan in yeah. is it the summit. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is it about documentaries for you? What, what do they achieve that sometimes feature films struggle to? Or what's the strength of a documentary overall? I, 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 it's funny, actually. I've been having this conversation with somebody about, about sort of watching an awful lot of films means that you, you have an awful lot of experience as to what's going to happen next and your heart sort of sinks you know as in well you know it's a story about a family well either the father's a baddie or the mother's a baddie do you know what I mean and you the more you watch films the more you see them as a puzzle that has to find a resolution in a way and what I'm I'm always intrigued about in that very banal sort of you know example is how documentary seems to me in the last couple of years to resolve and unravel and resolve and unravel in a far more interesting way and a narrative way than feature films um, and that performances which are such a huge part of a feature film are so difficult for directors to actually get right um, whether that's the director's fault or whether it's the actor's fault that I find myself taken out of the world um, whereas with a documentary, uh, so much of the time I find myself, you know, believing the integrity of the actual person, do you know what I mean, rather than doubting the nature of the character. And that, that I, I found myself, as I said, laughing or crying or amused or intrigued or um, delighted in the imagination and inventiveness of documentary that I don't find with features. But features very rarely. There's a great film that we have called The Move. It's from Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan. Um, the director I had no no familiarity with whatsoever. And I watched this film and I just thought, wow, I feel like I'm watching something new. Or The Tribe, for instance, the Ukrainian film is a very similar situation. It's a film about a boy, a deaf boy who goes to a deaf school and falls in with the wrong crowd. But it's all done without sign language or through sign language. There's no dialogue whatsoever. And it made me think anew about the way in which you watch films, that you actively 
follow a story? Do you need dialogue? What work do you need to do in order to engage with a particular story? And it reminded me of the way in which when you're watching a documentary, there's different senses are being pulled by a story that I don't think happens when you're watching a feature. And I think that the documentary for me is more exciting because of that. You know, with a documentary called The Decent One, it's about Himmler, and it's about a, uh, it's about a secret cache of letters and, and material that they found of Himmler after, after he died, after World War II. And they, they run it parallel to the chronology of the, of, of the war. And so you're, you're having this sort of harrowing description of these historical sort of facts. And pa- parallel to that, you have a father writing to his daughter about sending her chocolate and being sorry that he'll be away from his wife, but he has to go to this big sort of congress that his boss is organising. And, you know, to my mind, that kind of juxtaposition is creating so many different emotions within me, within an audience, uh, that I want to go and research more, I want to find out more. Where sometimes I'm watching a feature film and it's all closed. That it is what it is and then it will be over, you know? And and I just love the possibility, the potential in documentary, I think, is always more interesting. Um, That's a very long answer. Sorry. No, no, that's brilliant. Um, um, I've just lost my um, so, uh, Right, yes. Uh, you touched on it a little bit. As opposed to somewhere like Galway or the smaller film festivals, Dublin as a venue in mm. itself, do you know, it's, is it harder to create that festival atmosphere? Yes. Because it's, you know, in one way it's brilliant. You've got a bigger platform, you're spread out. It is hard. But you're happening yeah. in and around a working city and... And it's hard, and there's lots of other things that people could be doing. They could be going to the point, or they could mm-hmm. be going to Croke Park, or they could be going to you know any other variety of different musical or or sort of theatrical performances. I think the other side of it is is um, you know shifts in audiences and what they do. You know, I mean, I remember people. You know, when I was going to the film festival as a season ticket holder, you know, you stayed up all night talking to people, and then you got up the next morning, and then you went to see more films or whatever. And now, you know, it is an age thing. You know, dynamics change. We went to see late night films, for instance. I remember seeing Natural Born Killers and I saw Misery in the old Adelphi. So a lot of it is the shifts that happen as much as the actual cinema or the, the actual city itself. But you're, you're right. You know, it's one of the things that you have to try and find is a hub or a club space or a, a sort of a networking or a meeting place for people to go to. And then to be honest, there's something in the Irish psyche that the minute you find one thing that you, you, you define as the club, everybody goes, oh, I'm going somewhere else now, you know? Um, and also, you know, I'm, I'm always really conscious that when filmmakers come, you know, they should also see the city and yeah. they should go out and do something as opposed to being sort of like, you know, sort of managed within an inch of their life. But you're right, it, it, it's... It's about the same size as some other cities that I've been to, and they have exactly the same sort of issues. Do you know what I mean? How do you create a kind of intimacy in a city this big? You know, it's something that Galway, I think, manages brilliantly, you know, but then it's so small and intimate that, that, um, that people really feel that connection with each other. Um, I don't know how we would do it in Dublin, as I said. I mean, we try by having a club that's kind of in between all the different venues, but it's it's still hard every year. Um, and moving, the decision to move it from February to March, hmm. is, that, is that it? 
well, I had been moaning, which I know is you know, completely and totally out of character, about the idea that trying to get people to make decisions over Christmas was really difficult. Okay. And we needed to go to press the first week in January. And it just seemed every year we were coming up with people saying, I don't know, I can't make a decision, I won't be able to let you know whether the film is in or the guest can come or whatever. So we, by moving to March, the idea was that we would give ourselves a bit of a breather. Um, and for the most part, although it's too early to tell because obviously the best way to evaluate is on the other side, it seems to have worked. Um, we've definitely got guests coming this year that wouldn't have been able to come in previous years. Whether it works for the audiences, we will find out. Um, I think people liked having it in February. It was something to look forward to after the doom and gloom of January. Now that we're at the far side of Paddy's Day, we'll find out whether that's still there. Um, and then I suppose the other side of it is, is that you know, the, the pressure with the Oscar films around that February tunnel with the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes is just hell. So hopefully by moving into March you get a bit more space and that you'll be able to get a kind of international dimension to the festival. Um, and this is the last year that you're partnering with Jameson. Yes. yes. So how does the loss of that affect your, your ability to... Well, at the moment, we're, we're going to lots and lots of meetings with lots and lots of very excited companies who all see the value of a festival in a city like Dublin. And with the lineup that we have this year, you know, they can see that, you know, there's multiple different types of audiences. So there's lots of different types of companies. You know, Jemison came in from the very beginning with the Arts Council. So there's always been this sort of three-way relationship between the Arts Council Festival and Jemison. And... You know, from my point of view, it was a really interesting sort of relationship, you know, as in there's a sort of corporate global um, recognition factor to Jemison that's definitely been a sort of, you know, support to the festival. But the other side of it is, is that, you know, to my mind, the festival's now, you know, 13 years old. It's a very strong, it's got its own brand, its own identity, its own staff, you know, and, and it's kind of exciting, to be honest, you know, to sort of talk to different organisations who all want to talk about us and what we're going to do in the future. And I mean, your like, impact drew out of the book and the book festival and uh, Ulsterbank drew out of the book. Yeah, yeah, They've yeah. continued and gone from... Oh, no, I'm not worried. There's, there's no worry in the slightest, to okay. be quite honest. I mean, the, the thing is, is that I think what we have is a really exciting proposition for another sponsor. I just don't see... I don't see us as needing to go and talk to another sponsor as much as I think it would be really exciting for another partner okay. to be involved with us. And um, I mean, you travel a lot, you, you go to other festivals, mm. you're kind of engaged with how um, the funding maybe that's available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Ireland a particularly difficult country to gain investment and funding for cultural events or in comparison um. to other countries? I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of I, I know a lot of my friends work in very different types of structures. Do you know what I mean? I mean, if you think of Cannes, for instance, which is very heavily branded, mm -hmm. do you know, it's a very it's a very different type of dynamic. Um, I you know the Arts Council give us a hundred thousand euros, and that's a significant proportion of our actual costs, and they do that because they recognise the value of the actual event. I don't think, for instance, many of my sort of international counterparts would get that, that level of support from, from a government agency. I think that they would be probably pushed more towards um, corporate sponsorship. 
So, you know, our, our sort of structure is with lots of people like the Marion Hotel, for instance, with our car sponsors and, and with our embassies. We've a, we've a very stable structure, I think. And so when I look at other people, I can see the pressures that they have. And when we've never had any interference about our program from Jemison, whereas I've seen a lot of other people have. So, you know, that brings a pressure to them, which they say is worth it. Do you know what I mean? But I, from my point of view, the, the, the sort of strength of the festival is, is that we define what the program will be and we work with a partner to deliver it. The future, I think, will all be around finding a partner that has the same kind of aspirations. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I have a friend who works in a festival, for instance, in Poland, and it's very you know, heavily dependent on corporate sponsorship because the other so- sponsorship isn't there from the state. Um, other festivals you really enjoy and love going to? Okay, uh, I really like Cannes, which I know is slightly sort of controversial, um, because I love seeing the new films. I really, really, there's something exciting about sitting in May and watching something really exciting. And forgive my ignorance, is Cannes a festival where films get their very first showing? A lot of them will start off in Cannes. Yeah, um, and it's definitely the one that everybody aims to get into, um, even if they don't say that they do. Uh, they do. Um, so Cannes, I really like. Carla Bavaria, I really like in the Czech Republic. Um, I like Toronto. It's very functional. It's it's a great festival to see stuff. You can see five or six films a day. I mean, you know, Cannes, you probably can't see that many because you're getting distracted by the queues. Um, I really like this friend of mine's festival, Off Plus Camera, which is in Krakow. I love San Sebastian, it's a great festival. Um, never been to Sundance, might try and get next year. Berlin, yeah, I've only been a couple of times and I really liked it. Um, I went to Reykjavik Festival, which was really interesting this year. Um, and I'm hoping to get to Sarajevo. I mean, it's interesting, the thing is, is that I'm kind of drawn to festivals that are kind of quite experimental in their programming. Because I think if you go to a festival like Toronto, you know, it's it's a, a well-oiled machine, and you will just see everything that you need to see. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you go to, as I said, Sarajevo, you'll probably find a couple of hidden gems. Okay. You know, and and I kind of like. I think for me, I need the balance. Um, the ingredients that go into a good festival, if you had to. You've to find something that you wouldn't have seen anywhere else, and you have to meet people that you wouldn't have met anywhere else, and I think you have to be able to recognise that would be the way that I would see it. And your strengths as a festival director, the, the qualities that you have that make you good at what you do? I'm very good with pressure. Okay. I'm extremely good at pressure. Um, I didn't think I was until I saw what other people had to do and didn't and realised that they had nothing. Uh, nothing like it. I mean, we have 140 films, but whatever, 130 films. Um, and we put together a lineup which I think is really, really strong, but I'm also really conscious that we have a certain kind of expectation to bring a certain level of guest in. Um, and I'm good with dealing with that. Uh, I think I've got a good network now of friends and of colleagues and of contacts. And as I said, we can, we can, fu- we can get an answer, do you know what I mean, in relation to most films or most guests. And, and I'm really proud of that. I think that's something. And I think... The festival team, which myself and Jackie Ryan as the general manager have kind of built up, is a really strong unit of people who are professionals. So, you know, I'm really proud of my contribution to that because I think, 
you know, the thing about festivals, it's, it's, a year, it's an annual event. It's very difficult to get the same team back together. But the bigger a festival grows, the more pressure there is on it, the level of quality and delivery gets higher and higher. And you can't have a team that just comes back, do you know what I mean, for one year or whatever and then disappears yeah. and you start again. Yeah. So we've built a team, you know, and I'm, I'm kind, of, kind of proud of that as well, I suppose. Um, and I know we're coming to the end, but just, you've got Russell Crowe, Kim Cattrall and... Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews this and year. Ryan O'Neill. Danny Houston, Kenneth Branagh and Alan Rickman. Is there a, a process of, oh, we'd like him, he's not available? Is that a whittling down process? No, it's well? more the other way around. It's, it's more as in, um, it's, it's more that you send the invitation out and then you realise that the invitations come back. Uh, it's a yes or no. And that, that you're kind of, you've got 11 nights of the festival and you try to put one on each night. Okay. And then there's actual things that you'd like on the actual festival so you know I, I love having actors but I want actors who can communicate and talk about their work directors kind of the same you, you either have a director whose work you love and you want them to say a few words but you know that that's not necessarily their best strength but then you also have people who are fantastic speakers who will carry people along with them um, so it's it's hard to get the balance because sometimes it's only when you you, you have to keep an eye on the bigger picture you know, I mean, one of the things that's always interesting is, is the, the, the number of women to men and those type of ratios to make sure that you have women filmmakers and actresses coming to talk about their work, screenwriters. So, you know, with Carol Morley, with Kim Cattrall, Julie Andrews, but it's really hard year on year. I mean, it's not a political statement, but it kind of is, is trying to show, you know, examples and role models basically for, for audiences and for Irish filmmakers. And you know, every year it is a struggle to actually make sure that you actually do have women coming to the festival. Um, why do you love what you do or what do you Because it's always different. And always different. Every year, different films, different people. And what are the biggest challenges? Hmm, the, the biggest, uh, I mean, the, the biggest challenges is, always the, is all, also the biggest advantage. Every year it's a clean slate-ish. There are people who say they'll come the next year. Um, and then trying to shape it. You know, as I said, you watch all these films and you desperately want to get a film and you think it's going to be, you know, your opening night and you build an entire season around it and then suddenly it's not available. And sometimes... Why isn't it available? Well, because they might t delay the release plan okay. or they might actually go back and recut it or something might happen contractually and some reason the film's not available anymore. Um, and then everything has to be changed all over again um, or a guest says that they're coming and you build an entire structure around them and it's absolutely fantastic and then they get sick and you go but you don't understand this is not about you this is about me you know um, and, and you know though, but having said that sometimes in the middle of the night you have an amazing idea which you wouldn't have had except that you're thinking about it in the middle of the night okay yeah no, that makes sense um, advice to your 20 year old self I think my 20-year-old self did okay, actually. She went and talked to lots and lots of people, and she took advice from lots and lots of people, and she was extremely lucky. But I think you make a lot of your own luck. And I know back then, I did go and talk to a whole bunch of, back then, slightly intimidating guys, but they were extremely kind. And I think that that's still there. I was talking to somebody about this this morning, actually. You've got to ask. You know, I think a lot of people, maybe nowadays, think, It'll come to me. Yeah. It won't. 
nobody is going to pick you out of a lineup or a queue and say I'd like to offer you this job or I'd like to offer you this and I was speaking to somebody only last week who wanted to get into programming and I said you have to come up with a program you've got to go and offer it to me or offer it to the IFI or offer it to the lighthouse nobody's going to randomly email you and say I'd like you to program this um, and I, I, I think it's got harder now than it was back then but I think the rules are still pretty much the same. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you have a tr to draw attention to yourself, um, because you know, as I said, nobody's going to nobody's going to find you. Um, and if you were cast away in a desert island and could only have five films, oh my God! Oh, okay. Well, Tokyo Story, Dolce Vita, uh, Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, I know what I'd do. I'd put When Harry Met Sally and my Irish film would be 35 Aside. Okay, 35 Aside. Yeah, Damien O'Donnell's short film. It's a brilliant short film that makes me laugh every single time I see it. Okay, thank you. All right. That was brilliant. No, thank you're you so much. Much.